appreciate that. Let's take our Bibles this morning. We want to turn to uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. And as we do, uh, we're looking at applying the golden rule. The golden rule is uh, something that many of us know. In fact, uh, um, if it, truth be known, it's something like this has been, been said uh, in many different religions in different ways. But I want to read you a story, and then I'm going to conclude with it, the rest of the story at the end of the message. And it's a, a story about Catherine Laos, whose husband was the warden in Sing Sing Prison, 1921. And the first time there was a prison basketball game, she went, her and her three daughters in tow, and sat in the bleachers with the inmates. When she heard that one convicted murderer was blind, she taught him Braille so he could read. Upon learning of inmates who were hearing impaired, she studied sign language so she could communicate. For 16 years, Catherine Lau softened the hearts of the men at Sing Sing. In 1937, the world saw the difference real love makes. The prisoners knew something was wrong when Laos did, didn't report for work. Quickly, the word spread that Catherine had been killed in a car accident. The following day, her body was placed in her home three-fourths of a mile from the prison. As the acting warden took his early morning walk, he noticed a large gathering at the main gate. Every prisoner pr uh, pressed against the fence. Eyes awash with tears, faces solemn. No one spoke or moved. They'd come to stand as close as they could to the woman who'd given them love. Great story of one who really put others ahead of herself. You know, as we look at this, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, and this is really the central uh, verse probably of the entire Sermon on the Mount, but certainly for this chapter. He says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That's a strange passage. It really is. When we put them all together, we, we start thinking about the Sermon on the Mount at this point, at least, as being uh, pithy-type sayings that Jesus is making. Much like the Proverbs, every section of verses is like a different subject, but it's not that way at all. He starts off, though, very strangely by saying, judge not that you be not judged, probably the most favorite verse in all the Bible to the rest of the world. They don't know where it's found. They don't know it's in the Sermon on the Mount. All they know is it's in there somewhere. And uh, they use it really in the wrong way. But he says that, and then down in verse 6 it says, well, he, he calls them dogs and pigs. Now, you think to yourself, well, man, that's, that's kind of strange. On the one hand, he's saying don't judge. And another way, he's calling them dogs and pigs. And so, really, what does all that mean? Well, as we look at this, we know that we have to evaluate some things and we have to judge some things. How else will we know that, for example, there's false doctrine unless we evaluate it, unless we judge it? So there's a, there's a mystery here of what Jesus is really talking about and how it applies to the fact that we ought to treat others the way we, treat, we want to be treated ourselves. Well, Jesus, as we said, is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And Matthew's gospel is written to the Jewish nation. And in this, in quick review, what he's trying to do is bring them from the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, written 400 years before this book was written, before Jesus came on the scene, 400 years uh, without a prophet at all. And in the Old Testament, it was basically this. The Jews were the chosen people. And they were the chosen people to give people the word of God, chosen people to show uh, uh, the world Jehovah God. And th this is something they were supposed to do. They were God's chosen. But oftentimes, whether it's in the Jewish nation or today in the church, 
We tend to look down upon the people that are not part of us. And that's exactly what they were doing. And so they were guilty, guilty of not treating the Gentile world, at least, the way they were, wanted to be treated themselves. And they were guilty of judging the Gentile, the non-Jews, the way they didn't want to be judged themselves. And so as we look at this, we understand that there were a few central verses of the text. Look in chapter 5 and verse 20. For I tell you, unless Jesus said, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. He's saying, look, you know, being self-righteous is just not good enough. In fact, there's nothing you can do to save yourself. And that's what he's getting to. Jesus' mission was not to confront every single sin in the Bible. It wasn't just to say, okay, <clears throat> excuse me, if Jesus did not mention it, it must not be important. Had nothing to do with anything. His mission was to die on the cross for our sins. His mission was, therefore, in his teachings to show people they needed a Savior and to show people that he was that Savior, which we're going to get to in a couple of weeks when we start our series of messages on actions speak louder than words. And so as we're looking at this passage, we see that that is a key verse. But then another key verse is found in verse 48. <clears throat> he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, nobody's perfect. But again, here's this man sitting out there in the audience. He's standing up, listening to Jesus. And he's thinking to himself, wow, you know, Jesus performed already some miracles. I want to find out what Jesus is all about. And so he goes and he begins to get convicted. What do you mean perfect? I can't be perfect. Even the Pharisees aren't perfect. And so he gets into chapter 6 about giving and about prayer. Comes back to verse 21 in chapter 6. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So immediately now he's convicted because he knows he's not finding his treasure really in God himself. So now we come to chapter 7. And in this chapter 7, I want us to see the problem that we have in not only defining what judging means, but doing it ourselves and not treating our brother the same way that we want to be judged. Then we want to see the prayer for it. And then finally, we want to see the path to it because this is not something that's very simple to do, as you have found out in life. And so, first of all, let's look at the problem of it. In verse 1, it does say, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce you yourself, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be judged to you. So he looks, and he looks at this word judge. Now, this word krino in the original Greek language can mean one of many different things. When we think about judging, we think about more what Jesus is doing in the book of Revelation. He comes and riding on a horse and judging the world of their sin. And there's condemnation there. There's punishment there as well. And so when we're thinking about judging, we're, we're thinking about something that we shouldn't do, and that's what we should not do. We're not God, and so it's not up to us to judge people to condemn them, to judge people in order to punish them in some way. And this could come through, for example, with gossip. You know, you pronounce a judgment, you think some, you speculated this and speculated that, and you're sure it's this way. I mean, after all, you've got this great discerning spirit about you, and you begin to spread that a little bit and spread that maybe a lot, and that's condemning someone. That's punishing them for something that maybe they have done or you think they have done. However, this passage is not condemning evaluation. 
How in the world could you possibly do that in the context of the rest of the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus has already said that we need to judge behavior, that we need to judge attitude, that we need to judge the fact that we're city uh, set upon a hill. How are you going to know what your treasure is if you don't evaluate? How are you going to know if you're seeking first the kingdom of God? And then in chapter 7, we're going to get to this next week, great passage uh, next week for us. It says, beware of false prophets. How are you going to know if a person is a false prophet or a true prophet unless there's some kind of evaluation involved? Now, there's a problem in our culture today, and we are changing, by the way. Things are changing, and I I feel like, and attitude-wise, they're changing for the worse. But certainly... By, through 2008, 2010, 2012, for about 20 years, the whole thing in our nation has been tolerance. It's relativism. Look, you've got your truth, I've got my truth. You believe in your truth, I'm going to believe in my truth. But don't judge me. You know, so if you say that I don't have truth, then you're judging me. But we know from our culture today that that's, that's not, no, no longer the case at all. I think it started on the Internet, by the way. You know, it's amazing I notice that when you get in a car, if somebody's in a car and they got those windshields rolled up, they're liable to do and say anything to you. You ever notice that? They would never do the the kind of hand gestures they would do right in front of your face. And what about the Internet, though? I mean, it's like you've opened Pandora's box to say anything that you want to say, judge any way you want to do, any, any, any kind of condemnation, and now... That kind of attitude you can see in our society as well. And if you, are a, if you feel like, if somebody feels like you're judging them, they're going to judge you more harshly for judging them. And many people are saying, well, look, I know you're telling me what the Bible says, but don't judge me. What are they really saying? This is what they're saying. It used to be 20, 25 years ago, somebody would look at you and say, mind your own business. Everybody remember that? Yeah, mind your own business. And that's what they're saying when they say, don't judge me. It's really rude for you to say to somebody, mind your own business. Don't you think? You know, somebody says that, you're you're sort of taken back. But if somebody says to you, don't judge me, then you feel convicted yourself. It's not on them, it's on you. It's the same thing. What they're really saying is, look, I'm not going to judge you because I don't really love you. And you can live any way you want to live, do anything that you want to do, and I don't want, I'm not going to judge you because I don't want you to judge my behavior either. So you don't judge me, I won't judge you. You mind your own business, I'll mind my own business. And yet at the same time, we've got it all flipped as well. In fact, if you judge, you're going to be judged for doing that. If you do something wrong, people may not judge you to your face, but they're talking about you behind your back. And so we find this. A judging with a penalty involved. Judging the way Christ would judge in the book of Revelation. But notice it says this evaluation. He goes on to say in chapter 7 verse 3. He gives an illustration. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But you do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother... Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye. You can imagine you're in this crowd, and you're sitting there, you're standing there, listening to all this stuff, and you feel smaller and smaller and smaller as Jesus is really bringing you into focus on how you need a Savior. 
And now he gives a little levity. He gives the whole idea of a speck in your, your brother's eye and a log, big two before, hanging out of your own eye. And I can imagine the people thought that was funny or at least gave them a courtesy laugh. You know, like you do preachers. Let's practice that. No, that sounded real to me. A courtesy laugh. <laughs> That's as good. That's good. That's it. You got it. At least a courtesy laugh. And to, just to break up the tension. There's a lot of tension going on here. There's a lot of teaching that people have never heard before. And now he comes up with this illustration of specking along and they begin to laugh. What's he saying here? You know, this has been interpreted so many different ways, and I think it applies in so many different ways. The speck, you have a speck, and you put it out here, and your brother's eye it looks small, but if you put it up next to your own eye, it's a big log. And sometimes what we do is project our own weaknesses and sins on somebody else. If you have trouble, for example, and you think to yourself, oh, that person's just filled with pride. Every time you look around, somebody's filled with pride. Chances are, what happens? What, what is it? You're filled with pride. You're projecting your sin off on somebody else. Now, I'm not saying that that's always the case, but it's often the case when you see the same thing going on in somebody else's life. But then, I want you to notice here that really, I think it's talking about <clears throat> when he says a speck, a besetting sin in your own soul and something you consider small, but it's actually much bigger than what you think. But we'll just say it's a speck. It's a blind spot in your, in your life. Because here's what we do. There's a log in our eye, and everybody else can see, oh, man, there's big fault there. But when you think about it for yourself, it seems small to you. Why does it seem small? Because we minimize sometimes what we do. We do that. I mean, take an argument you have in your home with your spouse. You know, wife comes in, wakes up in the morning, whatever. Oh, my goodness. You forgot to take out the garbage again. Man, that stuff's going to stink to high heaven. That's a, oh, oh, yeah, high heaven. I don't know why heaven, but it's going to stink. And you say, well, you know, I, I had a rough day yesterday, and I just forgot about it, and you could have reminded me of it. And she says, don't yell at me. Well, you yelled at me first. Oh, no, I didn't. I just said, honey, did you realize that you took the garbage out? You, you forgot to do that? And it's, it's going to be kind of awkward going out and smelling that. Do you have any solutions to our dilemma? And it can go the other way as well. What's for dinner? What do you mean what's for dinner? I've worked all day. You've worked all day. And what do you mean what's for dinner? I can't believe you asked me what's for dinner. And all you're thinking about in your own, own mind is you're just kind of wondering. But you're, you're, you're sharp with it. And she gets sharp at you. And you come back and, well, well don't, don't get so offended. Don't be so sensitive. What about your sensitivity? You said, what's for dinner? Yelling at me. No, I, I just said, honey, you know how much I love your cooking. And uh, I was so looking forward to, to the dinner tonight, and I, I would just be pleased whatever you cook, because everything you cook is good. And so you didn't say that. Yeah, that's exactly what I said. And, you know, we just did the giving cards, and I, I remember thinking to myself when I was a member at uh, Bogart First Baptist Church, and uh, I, I thought I was tithing, and I wasn't, and I'd look at that year-end thing, you know, you get for your, your taxes. 
I'd look at it and it'd be so low and I'd think, man, I can't believe they didn't record my giving. Somebody else is getting credit for my giving. Until then I look at my checkbook and find out. We always think ourselves less and we always minimize what we do. and We don't ever give ourselves the same, the, same, uh, the same grace to other people that we give to ourselves. If we gave the same grace to everybody else that we give to ourselves, we would really be giving grace at that point. But we minimize it. We blame others for it. We do. We, we blame, boy, if it wasn't, I, I know what I said, but if you hadn't said that, I wouldn't have said this. We have a tendency to pass the blame to others. And so Jesus is saying, look, if you want to have credibility, deal with your own spec first, your own log. In fact, the reason it's a log is because everybody else sees it but you. It's blinding you. And when you look at somebody else, you can't see for your own blindness, but you see a log in somebody else's, but it's, it's just really a speck. But you see a log. So he says, first deal with what's going on in your own life. And then he says, gently remove it. He says, he says a speck that is in your brother's eye. So, so you can, he says in verse 4, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in my own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. You can't see clearly because it's a log in your eye, but even if you think it's a speck, you ever got something in your eye? Yeah. Man, I, I used to wear those hard contact lenses, and oh my goodness, anytime something floated behind those, it was, I had to take it out. I had to re-clean it. I had to do something. It hurts so bad. And so you can't see clearly. Your eyes are watering up. But he says, gently, the idea is here, gently remove it. You know, sometimes we, we get a little holier than thou, a little self-righteous a lot of times. Maybe we do. Yeah, I'm going to remove that speck. I'm going to go to my brother, and because I know him so well, and I'm going to tell him what's what and what he needs to do. And, and, and you, you do one of these. And you say, what, what are you doing? I'm putting this little nozzle sprayer on the end of my hose. Now, open up that eye. And let me clean it out. You know? No, he says, take a little tissue paper and gently remove the speck. Gently. With love. With grace. And then, I mean, who does that? Who can do that? You know, there's very few people probably in my life right now, and I hate to admit that, but very few people in my life, I think there's a couple of staff guys, that if they see something on my jacket... They'll come up and say, oh, you got something on your jacket. Most people, if I had, if some the bird had done, a bird had done something <laughs> on my coat, they would just sort of, you know, kind of look away from it and, you know, wouldn't tell me anything. It takes a friend. It takes somebody close. It takes a relationship. You know, you, you don't go, I mean, come on, you don't go to a restaurant. And uh, like sometimes Pam and I, you know, we, we do see people we know, so we have to smile and greet. We don't have to. We, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, we raised seventy-seven thousand dollars. How's that? No. Uh, I get to smile and greet people, and so sometimes we look at one another after that salad's come in. Say, "Have I got something on my teeth? You ever done that with you on?" 
Now, who's going to, the way, you know, the server comes by and you say, do I have something in my teeth? <laughs> no, you don't do that because she's going to look at you like you're crazy. She, she has no relationship with you to tell you something is wrong. So that's why relationships are important. That's why things like small groups are important. Look in verse 6. Do not take, do, do not give rather, dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. When you're sharing something about a speck in a log, we will find out, and the Jews are going to find out later in the gospel, that the speck is sin, the log is sin, they, they know that, but the only way to get it out is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So relationships and talking and correcting people lead right into the gospel. Relationship leads to gospel witness. And now he's talking about dogs and pigs, those who would reject the gospel. That's what he's talking about here. Dogs were not pets. They were um, street animals, snarly, mean. Pigs, you know, were just, their God was their appetite, whatever they could eat. And so if you, you've cast pearls before, for example, swine, they might eat them. And they turn on you. Certainly a dog's going to look at it and say, that's not what I had in mind. And maybe turn on you. And so he says, don't cast these kind of pearls before swine. Now, let's compare pig to a man for just a moment. The idea here in the scripture is that when you put the gospel before a pig, okay, this is Jesus talking. You cast your pearls. The gospel is the pearl, the pearl of great price that we'll find in Matthew 13. Let me just read that verse to you real quickly. Again, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. What is this great thing he's talking about? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you're casting your pearls before people, and some of them, he says, are pigs. What is a pig? Well, it's a pig is, uh, is led by their own appetite. Their God is their belly, as the Bible would say. And so they're going to ask, well, what's, what's in it for me? Am I going to be more successful if I receive Christ? Am I going to have more peace if I receive Christ? Am I going to get more answers to prayer if I, see Christ, if I receive Christ? While the man, on the other hand, begins to grasp the gospel, he begins to think to himself, I am a sinner. I do have that log in, in my eye. I do need a Savior. I, I am a sinner. And that man sitting out there, standing out there and listening to the Sermon on the Mount begins to conclude, man, I really need help. It's me. Now, if he's a pig, he's thinking, well, now, if I, like Judas, for example, Jesus Iscariot, if I follow Jesus, am I going to get richer? Am I going to get more money? Am I going to have more success? But the man maybe in the crowd is thinking to himself, I need a Savior. I need God. I long for God in my life. Now it says here, when they don't hear you, they're going to trample it. And that's difficult. What it's really saying is, you give the gospel out. And if they don't receive it, don't give it anymore. Lay low. Pray for them. Now you know, if you've ever done a lot of sharing your faith in Christ... Every once in a while, and it's been very rare for me, but you get somebody that'll reject it and snarl back at you. That's what it's talking about. 
you cast that gospel before people who don't want to hear it, and they're going to snarl back at you. So it's really saying here, if you cast that gospel before them and they're not receiving it, just back off. Pray for them. Because you don't know who has rejected Christ for the last time. C.S. Lewis was an atheist before he became a Christian. He wrote then the Chronicles of Narnia. He wrote uh, Mere Christianity. Great Christian man, one of the great thinkers, Christian thinkers of all time. I read recently about an atheist, about 76 years old, uh, been a professor and a teacher all his life, been an atheist. Now he's just come to know Christ. You never know who that's going to be. But if you continue to press, no, don't you want to receive Christ? No, really, you know, what's your, what's your objection to the gospel? What, what is it? Why aren't you ready right now? What's it going to take to get ready? Let me give you my test. Let me give you somebody else's. And, and you pile on. It's going to turn on you and cause them to harden their heart even more. So he says, don't cast your pearls before swine. Unfortunately, I'm not God. I don't know who the swine are. But you back off when you know they're not hearing you. So how do you do all this? How do you pray? Look in verse 7. Now, you and I both know that the hardest prayers to pray and to get answers really are not, not about health. There, there's some people this, this week that went in for cancer and, and things turned out real well. Other people have been healed. I, I was healed of being a diabetic. Those kind of things are hard to have faith but the hardest things are when you're praying for somebody else. Do I have an amen? amen? Your daughter, your granddaughter, your son, your husband, your dad, your mom. Because they have a will of their own and something has to happen there. And so here is one of the most difficult prayers. But he's saying, look, if you want to get those people to receive Christ... He says, you need to pray for him. Now, he's already talked about the Lord's Prayer. He's already, already talked about fasting and really wanting in your heart to see things happen with, with God and for God. But look what he says in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. He gives three, three promises here that he hasn't given in the Sermon on the Mount. He's talked about prayer, but he's never talked about promises. Ask. He says, for everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks, it will be open. So let's open up this for just a moment. Asking. If you ask, you will receive. How do you know you're going to receive it? Because it is the will of God. I read to you, and it's not going to be on your screen, but I read to you 1 John 5. It says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have ask of him. How do we know? Because it's the will, he says it's the will of God. It is the will of God for your life. So when you know what the will of God is, and dear friend, the will of God is not limited. The will of God is like an ocean. It's not a little creek. An ocean of blessing in our life. There's so many things. For example, if a young person's disrespectful to their parents, you know what the will of God is there, so pray for it. You know somebody's lost without Christ. The Bible says God's not willing that any should perish, but to come, all should come to repentance. That's the will of God. You can pray for that. But you ask and ask and ask when you know the will of God, and it will be answered with yes. But, hey, you don't know the will of God. So it says, seek, and you will find. 
What are you seeking? You're seeking while you're praying to know the will of God for your life and to know the will of God for that prayer because the promise depends on it. But if you don't know the will of God, you just keep knocking. The Bible says that God, if we delight ourselves in the Lord, he will give us the desires of our heart. So what do we do then? Well, we keep praying for the will of God, but keep praying for whatever it is we're praying for until God answers it with a yes or a no. See, the difference is if you don't know the will of God, then it could be a a yes answer, but it could be a no answer. But if you know the will of God, it's going to be yes. And that's what Jesus is promising here. And so you just keep knocking and keep knocking. And there's many times I have no idea what God wants to do. I just keep praying. Pray for the will of God. Pray for the wisdom of God to know what that will is. But God, even if I never know, you do what you need to do. God, I'm praying for this. And you just keep on knocking. Persistence in our prayer life. Now, there's conditions to prayer. I've said before that God is a good father. He will give you what you would ask for if you you knew what he knows. The trouble is we don't know what he knows, and there's other uh, conditions to answers, answers to prayer. You've got to be a believer. You have to li- be living in obedience. 1 John 3.22 says, And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because he keeps his commandments and does what's pleasing in his sight or pleases him. You need to do it for the right motives. James 4.3, you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. In other words, you're praying for somebody else to change so it'll help you. That's what it's talking It's not talking about don't pray about yourself. Don't pray about your finances. Don't pray about your education. Don't pray about your kids. It just simply, you pray for the right motives. I want my child to change in order to benefit them, not me. I want my neighbor to change to benefit him, not me. Praying with the right motives. A person who loves and evaluates, confronts, prays for the individual, and you say, man, how in the world can I do that? How can I even get the will of God? How can I pray in all that wisdom? How can I be patient with people? How can I really, and here's the the bottom line, how can I treat others the way I need to be treated? It says that in verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So what's the path here? Because there is an objection. Wow, I'm not perfect, can't live that way. Jesus recognizes that. In fact, the Bible tells us very plainly, we can't do this. He says, be perfect. You treat, this is what it's saying, you treat your neighbor the way you want to be treated yourself every single time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for all of your life, including that which you've already lived. That's what it's saying. He said, I can't do that. Exactly. The man sitting there in the Sermon on the Mount knows exactly. I, I, can't, I haven't done that already. Even if I start now, I've got all this other stuff, baggage behind me. So how in the world do I deal with this? And Jesus gives this invitation. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. There's a contrast here, and there's been a contrast going on all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5, we, you remember we had the, the contrast of the righteousness of God versus the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. In chapter 6, giving versus keeping. In chapter 7, now, grace 
versus being a judge. And a judge in a sense of condemning, of punishing, of putting down, not of evaluating. That's good. Evaluation is great. You've got to do that, including evaluate yourself. And that's what Jesus is coming to right here. He says, evaluate yourself. Judge yourself, not in a condemning way, but evaluate yourself. And he says, you enter by the narrow or the broad gate. Two different ways. The highway that's broad seems easier. It's sort of like you don't have a GPS, nothing to guide you, and you decide in the, when there's a fork in the road, this particular road has more lanes. This road seems clearer, not much traffic. This road, fewer lanes, seems to have more traffic. Both of them, you think, lead to the same place. They don't, but you think they do. So you take the broad road. But down in the broad road, you will find a greater amount of traffic, a greater amount of trouble. And finally, it ends in a dead end, if not going right off a cliff. The narrow way begins, you think to yourself, it's narrow. I, I don't know how I can do this. And why is it narrow? Why is it hard? Because you have to give up one thing. The God, being the God of your own life. That's it. Being on the throne of your own life. Owning your own life. Boy, that's hard. But once you take that road, you'll find the traffic is there. But somehow, it's even beneficial. Along the way, you have great things that you can accomplish. I was, I was uh, with a friend of mine this week from uh, my school days, college days. And uh, he's a missionary, has been a, has been a missionary in a Muslim country for the last many years. And, um, and so I asked him, I said, how do you actually uh, witness in a Muslim country about Christ when you really can't witness? And he brought out all kinds of tr tremendous ideas that he came up with. But one of the things that happened to him, he got kind of a little bit of bad health. And the doctor told him, he said, you're going to start needing to really exercise. So he started bicycling and he started walking. And he joined this club, 300 people that walk eight miles twice a week. And they're walking along the way, 300 people, he says. And he says, I'm the only Christian there. Most of them are Muslims, and I get to know these people. And so walking along, and even though I can't invite someone to invite Jesus into their heart, I, he said, like, for example, I was walking along, and I said, you know, walking... Is, is really a great thing. And the guy said, yep, sure is. He said, in fact, you run across so many things when you're walking that you don't come across when you're driving a car. Yeah, he agreed with that. He said, no, Jesus walked everywhere he went. You know, it's amazing to me, and he brought up something that I haven't thought about before. Even when we share Christ, we never share about Jesus much. And what I mean is the stories, what he meant was the stories about Jesus. Nobody knows really uh, how compassionate and how loving he was it's just a matter of, hey, we're a sinner. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's proving love enough. But then he, he rose again on the third day, and we have to receive him into our life. Very quick, very simple. But he said, one day, when Jesus was walking along the road with his friends, he said, a, a widow came in a funeral procession coming their way. And he immediately understood that he said, the, the, um, the widow was going to bury her only son. And he knew exactly, being from the Middle East, he, he knew exactly what that meant. A woman's hope was in her husband. 
her hope of being taken care of and not being on the street. He's gone because he's a widow. But now her hope has been in her son. But now he's dead. And so the Muslim that he was walking with was very touched by it all. He said, and Jesus stopped what he was doing, went over and raised that young man from the dead. And he started jumping around and he started celebrating. And he gave, he gave that woman, her son, back to her. So that deeply touched him. Deeply touched him. There's all around the road on the narrow road. When you come across ministry opportunities and, and opportunities to help people that you would not have had on the broad road. Where is that narrow road? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way to heaven. He says, I am the road to heaven. I am the life once you get on that road. I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life that you want to lead. What does that do to you? You say, well, I mean, I'm a Christian, right? I mean, I was, <clears throat> I was born a, <clears throat> a Baptist. I was born a Methodist. I was born a Catholic. I'm a Christian. I'm a church member. And I'm telling you what, all these people that are living like the devil and ruining our country and ruining this, ruining the world, I'm telling you, God's judgment is going to come down upon them. Well, let me say this. If you realized, if you and I realized the sinner we were, as we come to the cross and realize if Jesus is the only way, then boy, it really takes grace. I can't get there on my own. No matter how good a church member I am. And if, that, if that's the grace that God gives to me, oh my goodness, how can I not give that same love and grace to everyone else? So what's the key? The key is more than just be thankful for the grace that, that comes your way. But the key is also having Jesus in your life. You know, my friend also told me about a little game he played. And uh, he, he, he's thought up all kinds of ways. And so what he did, he had a bunch of Christians over here, a bunch of Muslims over here. And they said, okay, what we're going to do, he said, I want the Muslims to act the part of the Christians. And the Christians to act the part of the Muslims. And you're going to have to argue for that religion and answer questions on that religion. And so the Christians... Knowing a lot, of, they were amazed about how much they knew about the Muslim faith. They began to argue for the Muslim faith. And when they made objections, they defended it as best they could. But he said, what was amazing is that the Muslims knew so much about Christianity when they asked them questions. And like, well, so-and-so in Hollywood and this person said they're a Christian. Why should I want to be a Christian? They said, no, you don't understand. There's really two types of Christians. Now, they, that's not true. But they thought that. They think that. So there, there's a kind that just say they're a Christian, but then there's a kind that really mean it. He said, yeah, but how do you do this? And how do you? He said, well, what happens is something within them, a Christian, this Muslim explained this, something within them gives them a desire to serve and do right. It gives them that desire to do what they need to do. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. They just didn't know it. But it's amazing how someone from a whole different faith 
really understands how it really goes on. How do you give somebody that kind of grace? Not only do you experience yourself, but the Holy Spirit of God lives within you. Let me finish the story here with Catherine Laos. As you recall, she died in a car accident. All the prisoners were up against the fence as close as they could get to the house where she, her wake was. The warden made a remarkable decision. This was the acting warden. The warden, of course, was at the funeral. All right, men, you can go. Just be sure you check in tonight. These were America's hardest criminals, murderers, robbers. These were men in the nation had locked away for life. But the warden unlocked the gate for them, and they walked without escort or guard to the home of Catherine Laos to pay their last respects. And to a man, each one returned. We're reminded what can happen when love is lived out, love and grace is lived out, and the words of Jesus are taken seriously. See, we can make that kind of difference. But we do it, yes, through evaluation, to know what's the truth and what's not the truth. But once we realize when someone's not in the truth, yes, we do help them in the best way we can, understand the truth, but not in a condemning way, but in a helpful way. Not to say, I want to prove to you I am right, but rather to show you how you can be right with God. With heads bowed and eyes closed, this morning, if you've never received Christ into your heart, I'm going to give you that opportunity to do so today. And uh, I pray for us all that we would be able to treat others the way we want to be treated ourselves, but we can't do that without that right relationship with God. So in the quietness of this moment, with heads bowed and eyes closed, if that's the prayer of your heart, let me ask you right now to invite Christ into your heart by praying this prayer with me. You can pray silently as I pray aloud. Lord God, (coughs) thank you so much for all that you've done for me. Thank you that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to heaven but by you. God, thank you for providing a way, a way that we all can go rather than no way. Thank you, Lord, for your grace as Jesus died on the cross for our sins. I pray I can experience that grace right now in my life. And Lord, I confess my sin to you of owning my own life. And I invite you to come into my life and make me the person that you want me to be. Help me to walk with you. Help me to do what needs to be done in my life in order to to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.